Welcome to Be Set Free, the radio outreach of Whitefields Community Church in Longmont, Colorado. Be Set Free features the teaching ministry of Pastor Nick Cady. Pastor Nick's desire is to bring the gospel into our lives so we can experience the joy and freedom that can only be found through Jesus. Today's message comes from our series, Desiring the Kingdom, a study of the books of First and Second Kings. Here's Pastor Nick. 2 Kings chapters 9 and 10. Let's pray. Lord, as we come to your word, we ask, give us receptive hearts. Lord, may the seed of your word be planted in your hearts. Lord, may you water those seeds. And Lord, may they bear up much, much good fruit for your glory and for our good, for the good of others through us that you want to do. Lord, we ask that you would do that radical change at the root of who we are as we study your word today. And your spirit works within us. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, have you guys ever met somebody who, like, everything they did, they did it with, like, 110%, right? They did it passionately. They did it with their whole heart. No matter how small, no matter how menial the task, they gave it 110% all the time. I've known a few people like that in my life. I was remembering that a few years ago, I got to speak on the stage of a big conference. It was a big pastor's conference, but I wasn't asked to be like a, a teacher at the conference. I was just asked to give an announcement. So I got to go on the stage to give this announcement. But while I was backstage waiting to go on, to give the announcement, this guy comes up to me, and he grabs me by the shoulders, and he looks me in the eye, and he tells me, you are never going to get this moment back. So go out there and give it everything you have. And I was like, I don't think this guy realizes that I'm just the announcement guy. But you know what? I am going to go out there, and I am going to give it everything I've got. I'm gonna, this is going to be the best announcement these people have ever heard in their lives, right? Because like, I love that attitude. If you're going to do something, you might as well do it wholeheartedly. You know, in the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 9, it says this, Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might, for there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. I love that idea. In other words, it's saying this. Listen, you've got one life to live. You've got a small window of time while you're here on earth. Don't waste it with timidity. Don't waste it with half measures and being half-hearted. Well, today, we're going to meet a person who everything he did, he did 110%. We've got a name for people like that. We call them radicals. You know the word radical, it comes from the Latin word radix, which literally means root. It means root. So to be radical, to the word radical, it refers to the root, the core, the heart of who you are at very center. So in 2 Kings chapters 9 and 10, we meet a man named Jehu. And this man was a true radical. He was fervent. He was ferocious. And God used Jehu to bring about a radical, sweeping change in both Israel and Judah. And yet... As radical as Jehu was, there was still something he lacked. That's what we're going to see in our study today. The title of today's message is The Radical Change. And what we're going to see as we study the life of King Jehu is this. We're going to see that it is possible to do the right things for the wrong reasons. But Jesus is able to bring about the radical change that we need. Every week, I give you a sentence. That sentence summarizes the core idea of what this 
passage and what this message is about. And then we use that sentence as our outline and our guide for studying the passage. So if you want to write that down, if you want to take a photo of it, if you want to memorize it, it'll be great. And later on today, somebody's going to ask you what they talk about at church, and you're going to tell them this. It's possible to do the right things for the wrong reasons, but Jesus is able to bring about the radical change that we need. So let's work through that sentence as we study this passage. It's possible to do the right things. Let's talk about doing the right things. 2 Kings chapter 9 begins with these words. It says this in chapter 9, verse 1. Then Elisha the prophet called one of the sons of the prophets and said to him, tie up your garments and take this flask of oil in your hand and go to Ramoth Gilead. And when you arrive, look there for Jehu, the son of Jehoshaphat, son of Nimshi, and go in and have him rise from among his fellows and lead him to an inner chamber." Then take the flask of oil and pour it on his head and say, Thus says the Lord, I anoint you king of Israel. Then open the door and flee. Do not linger. So he's like, okay, here's what I want you to do. You can go find this guy. You can dump some oil on his head. Tell him, you're the king now, and you're going to run away as fast as you can. Well, let me give you a little bit of context for what's going on here. At this time, remember, the nation of Israel was divided into two kingdoms. Israel was the northern kingdom, and Judah was the southern kingdom. They had two different kings during this time. They were separate nations, although they were one people. The, king, the northern kingdom of Israel, they had a king whose name was Joram. Now, Joram, in some places, is also called Jehoram. It's just different spellings, different pronunciations of the same name. But it's the same person. And Joram was the king of Israel, and he was also the son of King Ahab. Now, that's important because King Ahab, we read about him in 1 Kings, at the end of 1 Kings, when we talked about the prophet Elijah. Well, King Ahab was the most wicked, the most evil king who ever reigned over Israel. And what made him so wicked is that he introduced a form of pagan worship. He worshiped the pagan god Baal. And the pagan god Baal was worshiped by human mutilation, by the shedding of human blood, and by human sacrifices, and most specifically, the sacrificing of human babies, human children, on the altar to the pagan god Baal. And, and Ahab had a wife named Jezebel who was equally as evil as he was. And together, they killed the prophets of God. They tried to eradicate the worship of Yahweh out of Israel completely. And because of Ahab's wickedness, and because of all the atrocities that Ahab and Jezebel committed, in 1 Kings chapter 21, God had promised that he would bring judgment upon the house of Ahab. Now listen, part of what makes God good, when we say that God is good, part of God's goodness is that he is not only a God of love and, and mercy and grace. Part of God's goodness is that he is a God of justice. He's a God of justice. God would not be good if he winked at evil. Instead, he's a God of justice. Now, on the one hand, the Bible tells us that there will be a judgment for our souls, right? The Bible says this, that the soul that sins shall surely die. That's kind of hard to say. It's like Sally sells seashells at the seashore, right? The soul that sins will surely die. But sometimes we also see in both the Old Testament and the New Testament that God also carries out judgment in people's lives here on earth. We could call that temporal judgment. 
Now, here in 2 Kings chapters 9 and 10, what we're going to see is this. Jehu, this guy who's just now being anointed the next king, he is going to be God's instrument of judgment upon the house of Ahab. And God is going to use Jehu to also get rid of the worship of Baal in Israel. It's going to be a radical change that's going to take place in Israel through this man, Jehu. Now, know this. King Ahab and his son, King Joram, they belong to a royal dynasty that has ruled for generations at this point in Israel. That dynasty is called the House of Omri. They belong to the House of Omri. And um, even though God had promised back in 1 Kings chapter 21 that he was going to judge this dynasty and overthrow this dynasty, replace it with another one. Here in 2 Kings chapter 9, even though that promise was given back in 1 Kings 21, here we are in 2 Kings chapter 9, and Joram, who's of the dynasty of Omri, is still on the throne. And you wonder, why is that? Why is it that this man's still on the throne when God promised to overthrow this dynasty? Well, there's a good reason for it, and the reason is this. Because God is extremely, surprisingly, scandalously patient and long-suffering. And God wanted to give Joram every possible opportunity to repent and turn to him, to turn from his sins and turn to God and receive mercy and grace instead of judgment. But instead of repenting, what we've seen here in 2 Kings is that Joram continued in the same evil ways as his father Ahab. And so now the time has finally come for God to raise up a new king, Jehu, who's going to overthrow that dynasty, and he's going to bring about a radical change in Israel. So here in the opening verses of chapter 9, let me just tell you what's going on. And, and we're going to go kind of fast because we're covering a lot of ground. So it'd be good if you have your Bible in front of you and you can look at it as I kind of summarize what's happening. So Elisha tells one of his prophets in training. When you read there about the sons of the prophets, the sons of the prophets were not literal, you know, descendants of prophets. What they were is they were prophets in training. They were student prophets. They were training in Bible college, if you will, to become prophets. So he tells one of his, you know, intern prophets, he says, I want you to do this. Take a flask of oil and go find this guy named Jehu. And I want you to anoint him as the next king of Israel. Now, there are three types of people in ancient Israel who were anointed with oil. Those were prophets, priests, and kings. Prophets, priests, and kings were all anointed with oil when they began their ministries. And the reason that was done, the oil was a symbol that God was empowering them, anointing them to, uh, to carry out the ministry and the mission that he had placed upon their lives in those roles as prophets, priests, and kings. But this is probably the strangest anointing ceremony that we ever read about in the entire Bible. Here's what happens in verses 4 through 10. This young prophet, he goes to the house where Jehu is staying. He knocks on the door. They answer the door. And they're like, hi, who are you? And he says, um, nobody. I'm just looking for this guy, Jehu. Jehu. Is Jehu around? And they say, yeah, he's over there. So he goes up to Jehu. He takes this oil out. He dumps it on his head. And he says, God has anointed you king over Israel. And he has called you to strike down the house of Ahab and to avenge the blood that was shed by Ahab and Jezebel. 
And then the prophet turns around and he runs as fast as he can out the door and he just keeps running. Now you wonder, why is this guy running? Here's why. Because there already is a king in Israel. Understand that by anointing a new person as king of Israel and telling him that he's called by God to execute the current king of Israel, well, that would be a dangerous mission because that would absolutely be seen as an act of treason. So he's, he's running for his life, lest anyone capture him for committing this act of treason, even though, of course, it's what God told him to do. You've been listening to a message by Pastor Nick Cady of Whitefields Community Church in Longmont, Colorado. We'll get back to the remainder of this message in a moment. We are open for in-person worship on Sunday mornings with services at 8, 9.30, and 11 a.m. Come grow with us on Sunday mornings online or in person at 8, 9.30, and 11 a.m. Now, back to Pastor Nick with the remainder of today's message. Well, after being anointed as king, you can imagine Jehu comes out of this room. He's just got oil dripping down his face. And the people are like, what just happened? And he's like, well, he just told me that I'm king. And they're like, well, all hail the king, right? So here he is. He's king. He's been given this task to avenge the blood that was shed by Ahab and Jezebel. And we see in verse 14 that Jehu didn't hesitate at all. He got to work right away, immediately. And the first person he's going to go after is Joram, the current king. Guys, just a warning. The rest of this section, it's kind of like the Terminator, right? He's just going around terminating people. That's what this is going to be. We read in verse 15 that Joram, the current king of Israel was staying in Jezreel at this time. Now Jezreel is kind of in the middle of, of the northern kingdom of Israel, and it is the place where the kings and queens of Israel had their royal palace, their royal residence. So here's Joram. He's at the royal palace there in Jezreel, and he had been injured at this time, we read, in a battle with the Syrians. But there's something really interesting that we read in verse 16. We read in verse 16 that Joram, king of Israel, was there in Jezreel, but there was somebody else who was also there, King Ahaziah, who was the king of Judah, right? So both the king of Israel and the king of Judah are hanging out together at the palace in Jezreel at this very moment. The two of them are together. Now you wonder, what are these guys doing together? It's a very good explanation. You got to understand, Ahaziah, king of Judah, and Joram, king of Israel, were second cousins. They are related to each other. We're told that in 2 Kings chapter 8, verse 26, that Ahaziah, king of Judah, was the grandson of King Ahab. That made him and Joram second cousins. So they're related. They're family. And remember, that means he's also a descendant of King Ahab. And what has Jehu been called to do? to eradicate the descendants of King Ahab. That's going to be important as we go on. Okay, verses 17 through 19. Here's what happens. Remember, Jehu's on his way to the palace to meet these guys. And it says that the watchmen who are there guarding the royal palace, they're, you know, looking with their binoculars or whatever, and they're seeing somebody approach the palace, this entourage of people. You know, you can imagine kicking up dust in the air. They can see them from afar off. And they start wondering, is this entourage, is this group of people coming, are they coming in peace or are they coming to attack us? And in verse 20, I love this, it says, one of the watchmen said, well, it must be Jehu because look at how he's driving. It says, his driving is like the driving of Jehu, son of Nimshi, for he drives 
furiously. Even before they were able to see who it was, they said, yeah, that's probably Jehu. Look at how he's driving. That guy drives crazy, right? You probably know people who drive like this. Maybe some of you are people who drive like this, right? You can tell, oh yeah, I know who that is. That guy drives furiously. So this tells you something about Jehu, by the way, also. We're going to see this as we go through this passage. They, they recognize it must be him because he's driving furiously. Because everything that Jehu does, he does it ferociously. He gives 110%. He does it with energy and zeal. So here in verse 21, here's what happens. Joram, king of Israel, and Ahaziah, king of Judah, they say to the watchman, they say, well, we know Jehu, right? He's the commander of the army of Israel. So we're just going to go out and meet him. And we'll just ask him, hey, what are you doing? Why are you coming here? What's the, what's the deal? So they get in their chariots, and they ride out, and they meet Jehu on the road, outside the, outside the palace, on the road to the palace. They meet up with him. And verse 22, when they get to Jehu, Joram asks him, do you come in peace, Jehu? And Jehu says, how can there be peace as long as the idolatry and sorcery of your mother Jezebel continues here in Israel? So in verse 23, Joram realizes Jehu has come here to, to assassinate them. So he says to Ahaziah, his second cousin, he says, treachery, O Ahaziah. And they turn around their chariots and they start to try and race away from Joram because they know that he's come to, or sorry, from Jehu because they know that he's come to kill them. Well, verse 24, Jehu drew his bow with all of his strength, and he uh, shot Joram between the shoulders, and the arrow pierced his heart, and he died. Okay, so now this guy's done. Look at verse 25. It says that Jehu told his men to take Joram's body and throw it in the field of Naboth. Now, why is that important? Because if you remember back to 1 Kings chapter 21, one of the things that was kind of the last straw when God said, okay, that's it. I'm done. I'm judging the, the family of Ahab. Here's what Ahab did. He murdered a man and stole his property, his ancestral property. And so this is kind of showing that this was done in judgment for the wicked deeds of Ahab. So they take his body and they put it on the land of Naboth. Well, after executing Joram, Jehu also then executes Ahaziah, king of Judah, in verse 27. So get this. In one day, Jehu has killed both the king of Israel and the king of Judah in one day. Now, starting in verse 30, Jehu turns his attention towards Jezebel, the queen and the wife of King Ahab. Now, Jezebel, understand, we saw in 1 Kings, she was just as wicked as King Ahab, and in some instances, even more wicked than King Ahab. Her death as a judgment from God was prophesied many years before this, but as we see here, at this point, she was still alive. Well, Jehu, he comes to the entrance of the royal palace there in Jezreel. Now understand, he's standing outside, and she's inside. This is a fortified you know, palace there. And, he, and she leans out the window. Jezebel comes to the window. She leans out the window, and she says to him, Is it peace, you Zimri, murderer of your master? And why does she call him Zimri? Here's why. Because Zimri was the name of a man who had assassinated King Basha, king of Israel, in 1 Kings chapter 16. So by calling Jehu Zimri, I'd be like if we said to somebody, is that you, Judas? Is that you, Benedict Arnold? In other words, she's calling him a despicable traitor. Well, understand, Jehu is outside the palace, and 
Jezebel is inside this fortified palace. So what does Jehu do? It says in verse 32, he shouted up to the servants who were inside the palace and he asked them, are any of you with me? And it says there that two of Jezebel's own servants grabbed her and they threw her down. They threw her out of the window and she hit the ground and she died. And it says that her blood splattered on the ground and her body was trampled under the horses. So there's Jezebel's body lying on the ground in the middle of the street. And what does Jehu do? He goes and has dinner. That's just what he did. I'm not making it up. It says, he he said, okay, let's go eat dinner. So they go and they leave her body lying in the street. They go and they eat dinner. And then they say, they come back and say, okay, well, we should collect her body, give her a proper burial. But by the time they return, they found that dogs had eaten her body and all that was left was her skull, the soles of her feet, and the palms of her hands. Now, the reason we're told this gory detail is because Elijah the prophet had prophesied in 1 Kings chapter 21, that Jezebel would die in Jezreel and dogs would eat her flesh. So here we have the fulfillment of that prophecy from 1 Kings 21. All right, so far, let's just take stock. We've reached the end of chapter 9. What would we say about this man, Jehu? Well, I think we would say two things. On the one hand, we would say that he has obeyed what God told him to do. And the other thing we would say is that he has done it energetically and enthusiastically. He's done quite a bit in a very short amount of time. So, so far, he's doing all the right things, right? He's doing all the right things. Let's continue in chapter 10. In chapter 10, Jehu continues this mission to bring about radical change in Israel. It says in chapter 10, verse 1, that Ahab had 70 sons who lived in Samaria. Remember, they had multiple wives oftentimes at this time, so that's how you're able to have this many sons. Well, Jehu sent letters to them. This is interesting. He's like, send some letters to them, telling them, hey guys, it's Jehu here. I'm coming for you. And when I get there, God has told me to carry out judgment against the house of Ahab. So I just want to give you a heads up that I'm coming. I'm going to take you out. If any of you want to fight against me, that's fine. I'm just giving you a heads up, kind of a a gentleman's warning that I'm coming to get you. And so uh, here's what they do, though. They get this letter, and they're like, okay, Jehu's coming, and he's coming for us. What are we going to do? Well, it says there in verse 4 that these 70 sons of Ahab, they get these letters, and they're like, this Jehu guy is crazy, right? Like, he is crazy. He just killed two kings uh, in one day, and we don't stand a chance, first of all. And, and what's the point of fighting a losing battle? They knew that God had called for the judgment of their family. And so instead of fighting against Jehu, check this out, they literally surrendered their lives. They said, you know what? We're not going to fight. Just, we surrender our lives. And the nobles executed these 70 sons and sent their heads in baskets to Jehu as proof. So that was, that was easy. Let's keep going. Verses 12 through 14. Jehu finds some more relatives. These are the relatives of Ahaziah, who, remember, was the grandson of Ahab. And he executes them too. So up until this point, Jehu has done exactly what God told him to do. But now, starting in verse 15... This is where we're going to start to see the second part of our sentence that we're studying through, remember? And that's this. It's possible to do the right things, but for the wrong reasons. It's possible to do the right things, but for the wrong reasons. Let's see how that played out in Jehu's life. 
In chapter 10, verse 15, we read that Jehonadab, the son of Rechab, came to meet Jehu. Now, who is this guy? What's this all about? Well, we actually know from Jewish history and from the book of Jeremiah, chapter 35, that Jehonadab was the founder of a religious reform movement in Israel, which was called the Rechabites. That's what they were called. So in other words, we've got this guy, Jehonadab. He's the leader of this religious reform movement, and he hears about Jehu and all the things that Jehu is doing, carrying out the judgment of God on the household of Ahab. And so he goes out to meet him to see if they might have anything in common and they can work together. But I want you to look at what Jehu says to Jehonadab in verse 16. It's really telling. Here's what he says. He said to him, come with me and see my zeal for the Lord. Come with me and see my zeal for the Lord. So he had him ride in his chariot. It's kind of a weird thing to say, right? Hey, Want to see how awesome I am? Hey, let me show you how how zealous I am for God. Watch this. And he's going to take him. Now listen, it's very clear from this that Jehu wants to impress Jehonadab. He wants to show off how zealous he is for the Lord. It seems that Jehu is very hungry for the approval of this man, Jehonadab. And that's not surprising because Jehu probably, as a new king, he probably wants to win the support of this respected religious leader. Now, perhaps Jehu thought that if he could impress Jehonadab, this leader of this reform movement, then the religious people in Israel would be more likely to follow him and take his side. The point is this, though. It's clear that Jehu is not only interested in doing these things he's doing for God's glory. He also very much cares about his image, about what other people think about him. He wants people to see that he's zealous. He wants people to think that he is zealous. You've been listening to Be Set Free, the radio outreach of Whitefields Community Church in Longmont, Colorado. We have three in-person services on Sunday mornings at 8, 9.30, and 11 a.m. And our 9.30 and 11 services are live streamed on our website for those who would like to worship with us online. We are located just east of County Line Road and Highway 119 at 2950 Colorful Avenue in Longmont. For more information or to hear other messages from Pastor Nick, visit us online at whitefieldschurch.com. Be Set Free is a listener-supported program. If you have been blessed by this message and would like to support this ministry, you can send a donation via check to 2950 Colorful Avenue, Longmont, Colorado, 80504, or donate online at besetfreeradio.com.